0: Turn with me in your Bible. Where do I want to go first? I'm going to read you something out of the Maccabees. I'm studying the Maccabees right now, which is not in your Bible, by the way. I just want to be clear on that. Galatians chapter 3, like Maccabees. Is he going Scottish on us? I've been Scottish on you, but I'm about as Scottish-American as some of you are African-American, just to be honest. My kids were asking me last night, Daddy, what are we? Are we Scottish? No, we're mutts. (laughs) We got a little bit of Indian in them, but we won't, not enough to get any money. My grandfather was 1 16th or 1 quarter Native American Cherokee, and it gets washed out very quickly after that. I'm studying the book of Maccabees right now, uh, and as I work on my book on Bible botany, and it has to do with the palm fronds. Uh, The book of Maccabees are in the Apocrypha. That's what is also called the intertestinal period, the 400 years of silence between Malachi and the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The Maccabees are in the Catholic Bible. The 1st and 2nd Maccabees are in the Eastern Orthodox Bible. You can get a copy of it. The King James translators translated the book of Maccabees. And really, it's just a book of history. It is not considered inspired or the divine word of God, but it is a historical document. 1st and 2nd Maccabees chronicle the same period of time, but they're written by different authors, and they chronicle the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt has to deal with the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in about uh, 164 BC or the 2nd century BC during the Seleucids or the Greek Empire. Um, They killed Darius, uh, king of the Persians in the Medo Empire and then the Seleucids or the Greeks rose to power and they were Hellenizing all of Asia. Minor. To be Hellenized means you embrace Greek culture. So Israel was, of course, because of their sin, had been under slavery by empire after empire. First, it was the Babylonians and it was the Medo-Persians. And now in the time of the Maccabeans, it's the Greeks or the Seleucids. And so they were okay. Most of these empires, the ancient empires, they allowed whatever territory they possessed to just keep their culture, keep their governments. It's just how you micromanage in those days. You don't send in your army. You can't possibly control it, but you let them, you, you keep the crowds happy. And everybody was happy with that um, until Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV Epiphanes means the divine God or the revealed God. He thought he was God. Most of these idiots do. Uh, he thought he was God. And one of the things he did when he took over Judea or actually took power over Judea, as I read the Maccabees last night, I fell asleep reading First Maccabees, I couldn't help, I've said, Lord, what what heroes of faith? Now granted, they're not our Bible canon, but they are historical figures. And I just want to read you something because every theologian I've read after, every eschatologist acknowledges that Antiochus Epiphanes was an early fulfillment of the Antichrist because even the book of Maccabees accuses him of committing the uh, uh, abomination desolation because when he took over when he rose to power and began to exert his power over Judea, he commanded that a pig be sacrificed in Zerubbabel's temple. And that's the abomination desolation. Because, you know, to the Jews, pigs are unclean. There's no greater unclean animal than the pig. And for Antiochus Epiphanes to command God's high priest to butcher a hog rather than a heifer is the utmost insult. And he knew it. And so let me, let me read, I'm going to read about 30 verses out of 1 Maccabees Moreover, King Antiochus wrote to his whole kingdom, now this is the Greek empire, uh, the Seleucid part, that all people should be one people. That's what we're hearing now. You have to understand the Antichrist is already in the earth and he he moves to possess people to flex his plan. He will finally get it done during the time of the tribulation. He wanted all people should be one people and everyone should leave their own laws world government. So all the heathen agreed according to the commandment of the king. So everybody under his empire said, all right, let's do this. This was a change from his forefathers and how the other Greeks did it. They're like, no, keep your laws. We just want to exercise dominion over you. Keep your culture. Keep your religion. We don't care. We just want to say you're ours. This changed under Antiochus. Yes, many also of the Israelites consented to his religion, And sacrificed unto idols and profaned the Sabbath. For the king had sent letters by messengers unto Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that they should follow the strange laws of the Greeks and forbid burnt offerings and sacrifice and drink offerings in the temple. That's Zerubbabel's temple. That's the holy temple of God. And that they should profane the Sabbaths and the festival days. And pollute the sanctuary and pollute God's holy people. They set up altars and groves and chapels of idols and sacrificed swine's flesh and unclean beasts that they they should also leave their children uncircumcised and make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profanation to the end that they might forget the law of God and change all the ordinances. We're already walking in this in the American church. They did all of this so that Antiochus Epiphanes would be happy with them. And whosoever would not do according to the commandment of the king, he should, the king said, be put to death. In the selfsame manner, he wrote to the whole kingdom and appointed overseers over all the people, commanding the cities of Judah to sacrifice unclean animals city by city. Then many of the people were gathered unto them, to wit everyone who forsook the law, and so they committed evils in the land, and they drove the Israelites into secret places. That is, the Israelites that would not submit to Antiochus Epiphanes. They fled for the hills. This is 200 years before Christ. And they drove the Israelites into secret places, even wherever they could go and find relief. Now the 15th day of the month, Caslu, uh, in the 145th year, that is of the Greek empire, uh, they set up the abomination of desolation upon the altar and built idol altars throughout the cities of Judah on every side, and they burnt incense at the doors of their houses and in the streets. And when they had rent in pieces the books of the law which they found, they burnt them with fire. And whosoever was found with any book of the Testament, that is the Old Testament, Or if he committed, if any were committed to the law of God, the king's commandment was that they should be put to death. Thus did they by their authority unto the Israelites every month to as many as were found in the cities. Now the five and 20th day of the month, they did sacrifice upon the idol altar, which was upon the altar of God. One of the things Antiochus Epiphany said, he told the priests, you no longer call this God's temple. This is the temple to Zeus. And he made them go to church, but worship a different God. They still got to go to church. They still got to sacrifice. They just changed all the rules, which is exactly what the seeker movement is doing. We're still going to church, but it's not the same Jesus anymore. And they're happy to do it because it makes them popular and liked. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. They sacrificed upon the idol altar, which was upon the altar of God at which time, according to the commandment, they put to death certain women that had caused their children to be circumcised, and they hanged the infants about their necks and rifled their houses and slew them that had circumcised them. Howbeit many in Israel were fully resolved and confirmed in themselves not to eat any unclean thing. Wherefore, the rather to die that they might not be defiled with meat so that they might not profane the holy covenant of God. So then they died. And then it goes on to talk about uh, Mattanias a priest in those days who the Greek official was sent to his village because he was a very influential patriarch and a high priest. And he was offering sacrifices to Jehovah God in that city, which is what they were doing until Christ came. And the Greek official said, you're influential. Just go ahead and do what Antiochus asks. You'll have great favor. We'll make you rich. And Matt Antio- uh said, no, I'd rather die. And while this Greek official is there, Threatening him, one of the local guys quickly obeys the Greek official and goes to sacrifice unclean animals on the altar of God. And Mathanias grabs a sword and kills him on the spot, then turns and slays the Greek official, which is instant war. They head for the hills and they start the Maccabean revolt, which, which the reason that's important for our book is that when they finally beat Antiochus Epiphanes and Judah Maccabean, who was Matanias' son, he comes into Jerusalem, and they cleanse the temple, and they reboot Jewish worship. They herald him with a parade of palm leaves. And that's what they were expecting Jesus Christ to do at his triumphant entry. They were expecting him to be the next Judah Maccabean. But he was not. He did not overthrow Rome like Judas Maccabea had done Antiochus Epiphanes, which is why the same crowd that says, Hosanna to God in the highest, blesses he that comes in the name of the Lord. sin now prosperity, sin now deliverance. That's why in the same week they said, crucify him. These things are important to understand so you know the whole continuity of the kingdom. But I wanted you to see, every theologian says Antiochus Epiphanes was a proto-antichrist. He committed the abomination, desolation. One of, I'm reading after a Jewish historian who said, those who submitted to Antiochus Epiphanes in his day, the Jews, and they allowed their city to become Greek polis, or Greek city, they enjoyed free trade, free buying, free selling, free movement. And I thought, that's where we're going. So I just want you to see there's nothing new under the sun. And if I would encourage you to go read the Maccabees. They're not inspired word, but they are historical. But you can see them saying over and over again, we will not violate the law of our God. We will not deny our God. We will not violate the law of our God. We will not break his Sabbath. And there's seven sons that are martyred right in front of their mother. They're filleted alive and boiled. And each one of them says, kill me now. God will raise me up in the last day. And there's the resurrection being preached 200 years before Christ, because that was their faith. Are you in Galatians chapter 3? I was going to teach on eternal judgment, but it won't fit this morning. I was going for a run this morning, and the Lord just kept dealing with me about disciplined lives. So I'm going to call this message, sound guys, legalistic training. Legalistic training because we're living in a time of hyper-grace where everybody's afraid of laws, and we have this... Christian escape called legalism. Oh, that's legalistic. That's just legalistic. That's just legalistic. And you have to understand, there is a thing called legalism. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum is this thing called lawlessness. There's a spectrum of law. One end of the law is called lawlessness, where there is no submission, no discipline, uh, no control. And at the other end of the spectrum is legalism. Lawlessness says you can't tell me what to do. Legalism says you have to dot every I, cross every T, and and, 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 and Wapner at five. You better do it, you better do it, you better do it. In the middle is sanity, safety, promotion, provision, health, and success. When people's lives are falling apart, they're in one of the two ditches. They're either lawless or they're legalistic. Legalism will make you so uptight you'll blow a gasket and stroke out. Lawlessness will make you overweight, poor, and imprisoned. Amen. So legalism, we, what we'd say, the definition for legalistic is the strict adherence to the law, especially the letter of the law, rather than its spirit. You and I cannot overcome anything without rules and laws. And the higher you go in life, I've taught this many times, but hear me again. The higher you and I go in life, the more laws we have to submit to. The higher you and I go in life, the more laws will be applied to us. Right now, little children, toddlers, infants have less laws applied to them than anybody on planet Earth. They have less responsibility. Usually when people say, I don't want to get legalistic, what they're saying is, I don't want any responsibility. Amen. I make the point, once you know the laws of life, there's nothing legalistic about it. You learn how to operate within it and it brings great freedom. I've never seen a football player stop in the middle of the NHL or NFL in the middle of his $20 million a year contract, throw the ball down and say, this is just too legalistic. I can't cross the line of scrimmage. I can't spear. I, I can't, you know, trip. I can't punch. I have to stay on this green field. This thing has to be hundred yards long. I can't, I can't deflate this ball. <laughs> this is just way too legalistic. Why do we have to have so many referees? This is just legalism. No. You say, shut up. We pay you $20 million a year. Entertain us. Dance monkey, dance. <laughs> but once the ball player knows the sports or the rules, they have free liberty. Same with hockey, same with Olympics. Once you know the rules, those are the rules of the game. They make it equal to everybody, and they set people apart. When you're lawless, you get ejected. When you're lawless, you draw penalties. When you're lawless, you get kicked out. When you're lawless, you terminate your career. And I just, most of the time when folks cry legalism, their life's already a sinking ship. I think about Jeff Bezos or even Elon Musk. These are the wealthiest men in the world. These men in their businesses have to submit to state laws, city laws, governmental laws. It's made them billionaires, and they both have space projects, privately funded space projects. But to launch rockets into space, you have to submit to international laws, FAA laws, federal government laws, and yet they're the guys building rockets with their personal money. The more mature you are, the more eager you are to learn laws, to submit and master. The less mature you are, the more you want lawlessness and, and you want to shirk off and be uh, free. And that's just dangerous. When your life's a mess, it's always a mess where you're lawless. When you're, if your money's falling apart, it's because you're lawless. Because one of the most important laws in your life is a budget. Budgets are crazy legalistic. If you're overweight, it's because you're lawless in your food. We're not saying any of this to condemn anybody. We're just using examples. All of creation operates by the laws of nature, and when you learn them, you can harness them. Nobody ever complains about the laws of radioactivity and radiation. They don't ever say, that's just legalistic. Who are you to tell me what to do? Give me that plutonium. As your hair falls out, your gums bleed and your eyes swell no they say thank you thank you for those laws you're saying I should stay 10 feet away how about 25 does 25 work for you works for me you get even more legalistic when your life is on the line and that's what we fail to see that in God's kingdom laws save us they're not meant to bind us they're meant to get us across the finish line so Galatians chapter 3 what I find is that in this day and age when we're dealing with the spirit of antichrist We're dealing with this spirit of lawlessness. That is the essence of Antichrist. The spirit of Christ brings us to rules and regulations, not to be righteous. And let's clarify that. We don't seek laws to be righteous. That letter will kill, but the spirit will bring life. We are not made perfect. We're not made righteous by obeying laws. We are made safe and holy, though. We're born again by faith alone in Jesus Christ. We're made the righteousness of God by faith alone in Jesus Christ, but by faith alone in itself a law because you have to obey that. In fact, that's what Paul said. You have obeyed the gospel of Christ, so you had to obey a law to get born again. To believe in your heart, confess with your mouth is a law that you have to obey to receive the benefits of. So even that aside requires legalism to be born again. It's faith and obedience. So we're not talking about obeying laws to be righteous, but laws do keep you safe and they'll tell you what holiness looks like. They'll bring promotion on your job and discipline to your private life. So uh, when we're dealing with laws, we're dealing with this generation of people that are lawless. Lawless just means don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. And that's often sold by the world as freedom. Who are you to tell me who I can and can't love? Who are you to tell me who I can and can't sleep with? Well, I just want to tell you the word of God. And, you know, if you wouldn't sleep around so much, you wouldn't have so many STDs. And you wouldn't be risk, uh, at risk of being shot by somebody's ex-husband. Gunshot wounds stop adultery. Just like cancer cures smoking and pneumonia cures vaping. Yeah. Amen. So we want to make sure uh, we're mature. Mature people, mature people go into any arena, and they want to know who's in charge and what are the rules here. Here in a couple of weeks, I'm going to go down to Atlanta. Mr. Michael's going to go with me. We're going to preach at a Congolese church, and I don't know uh, this pastor. I know him through Jean-Marie Malingala from DRC, and uh, so I'm already asking him the rules. What are we doing? What do you want me to minister on? What's the setting? You know, do you guys have COVID rules I need to obey? I'll preach in a mask if that's what you want. I want to know the rules. I'm not afraid of legalism. If it lets me preach the gospel, put all the laws on me that you want, I can master them as long as the gospel goes out. But if I was an arrogant, immature, reckless twit, I would say, who are you to tell me what to do? You're the one that invited me. Here I am. Just use me. Here I am or you don't want me. That's lawlessness, though. So what I've found is immature people don't want rules. Immature people don't want structure because immature people still live by their flesh and the whims of their sin nature. Let me say it again. I'm going to say it lots of times this morning. Wherever your life is falling apart, you need more rules because it's evident you're not disciplined enough yourself to get the victory there. If your mind is where you fall apart, you need more rules. If your body's where you fall apart, you need more rules. If your money's where you fall apart, you need more rules. If your parenting is where you fall apart, you need more rules. If your business is falling apart, you need more rules. Everything in life takes an investment of energy and regulation to get something accomplished. You can't can't just have heat, you got to harness it. You can't just have water, you got to harness it. Lawlessness is like a river that's not controlled. It's just destructive, but if you can harness the water, you can turn electric, turn power, you can use water, harness water and cut through metal with it. Same with the sun, you can power facilities or you can get sunburned. Even when we go sunbathing us white people. <laughs> Talk about a sign of discontentment. I'm not happy being peach. I want to be mahogany. <laughs> Even there I have to harness I have to harness the sun or I turn Carmen Diego, red like Miss Sassy right there. Actually, I don't turn red. I'm, I still have enough of that Native American blood in me. I get pretty dark. Anything has to be harnessed, including your life. So when you're immature, you need rules and regulations, and you need to be reminded of them over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over, and over again until they stick to the tables of your heart, at which point you no longer need the overseer. But very few people are mature enough to get there by themselves. So we all must have a boss, a manager, a professor, an instructor, someone who can stand over us, who has mastered the laws of the karate class or the soccer team. And they keep reminding us. And that's why even in sports, you have the officials who know the rules better than the players. And they'll blow the whistle and throw the flag because you just broke the rule. And even that teaches you not to do it. Watching football yesterday, so many guys got penalized, and they knew as soon as the whistle was blown, that was on me, and they'd walk around going, oh, oh, oh. It it hurts them that they broke a rule because it's going to cost their team. Does not the same rule apply to the church? You break a rule of God, it hurts the team. Why don't you show the penitence of a football player who punches himself in the helmet, and and then he has to go to the sideline, and everybody comes around and encourages him. Why why do the football players have more of a heart of excellence and commitment than flagrant, law-breaking, gracey, greasy Christians? Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. I'm going to read out of the King James. But before faith came, that is, before faith arose, we were kept under the law. That is the Mosaic law. The faith is an understood faith in Christ. Faith could not come in Christ till Christ came. And so before the uh, faith came or a faith in Jesus Christ, we were kept under the law. The word kept under is a military term. So that, that, what that implies instantly is that the law will keep us safe. Amen. Laws keep you safe. Aren't you glad they have laws on airplanes? Aren't you glad? I I don't even mind the body scans anymore. Please get it. I don't care who sees what I got. Just make sure you get the other guy's knife and gun. I don't care who's on the other side of that monitor seeing what I look like under x-ray. Just get his gun and his bomb. Laws keep us safe. Breaking laws hurt more than just you. And we're not talking about laws that make us righteous or get us to heaven. We're talking about laws that keep us safe. Before, the, before faith came, we were kept under law, a military protection. Shut up, that is the word uh, um, to be enclosed by a military force. So here's two terms invoking military protection. The law protects us. The law keeps us shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. So again, I'm teaching against lawlessness. I'm not teaching uh, righteousness by the law because as the Bible says, those that do them uh, must live in them. We're not talking about being the righteousness of God through obeying laws, but I want you to understand we have got to resist the spirit of lawlessness in the age. Uh, Let me pick on obesity as an extreme example. If you're always lawless with your food, you'll become lawless with your weight and you will die early. You don't see 90-year-old fat people. You don't see 80-year-old fat people. You don't see 70-year-old fat people. The mortality rate of obese people is very low because of complications on kidneys, diabetes, stroke, blood pressure, pulmonary. That's lawlessness, and it always comes home to roost. I want to live to be a full old age, but I can't break laws and expect it to happen. I, I, I want my car to be protected, but I can't drive 140 everywhere and expect that to always be the case. So we are deceived in thinking we can break a few laws, and because we got away with it yesterday, we can get away with it tomorrow, but lawlessness has a paycheck. So please understand, the laws of your boss, the laws of your place of employment, the laws of your city, as long as they're not antichrist laws, they keep you safe, they protect you. Plus, if you obey them, you're not going to get pulled over. If you obey them, you're not going to be arrested. If you obey them, they're not going to kick you off the airplane in handcuffs. I don't have a problem wearing a mask on an airplane. You know why? Because I want to go where I'm going, and I can wear a mask for two hours. I might write Petri dish on the mask. Mr. Gary flew somewhere. He wrote placebo on the mask. I also want to write Dumbo's feather on the mask. But... 95% 95% of the people wouldn't catch what that even meant. I'm like So, whatever. <laughs> the faith which should afterwards be revealed, faith comes by hearing, faith comes by hearing, faith comes by hearing. Eventually, you hear the laws enough, you catch them. Eventually, you hear the laws enough, you don't need to be told what they are. You know them. Verse 24, Therefore, the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ. Or actually the Greek says, the the law was our schoolmaster until Christ. The law was our schoolmaster, not to bring us, but until Christ came, the law was our schoolmaster that we might be justified by faith. Now we taught on this schoolmaster about five, six, seven years ago. I mentioned it to my wife this morning. I said, I'm going to teach on the tutor of Galatians. My wife said, she's getting ready. She said, the pedagogos, And I said, I did teach on that, didn't I? I totally forgot. I thought, man, she's taking notes. So I said, yeah, I'm going to teach on the pedagogos. So let me give you the definition. Let's finish these two passages, and we're going to talk about the pedagogos again. Because wherever your life is falling apart, you are lawless, and you need a pedagogos. Amen. We'll explain what that is here in a minute. Let's keep reading. Therefore, the law was our schoolmaster until Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, after faith has come, after I'm grown up, I no longer need the pedagogas. That is the constant reminder. You only get pulled over because the cop has to remind you you're breaking the speed limit. It's It's your fault you got pulled over. It's your fault you got pulled over. It's your fault you got pulled over. He's reminding you. He's having to be the pedagogos because you were breaking the speed limit. You needed the reminder. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Jump down to chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. So there's that reference again to immaturity requiring tutors and governors, not governors like the governor of Tennessee, but masters in your life. So in this passage, we have, we have schoolmasters, we have tutors, and we have governors. And these are things that are necessary in our life when we're immature. You can be 75 years old and still need a schoolmaster. You can be 60 years old and still need a tutor. You can be 80 years old or 50 years old and still need a governor in your life because wherever you're lawless, you don't have the heart of God yet. So let me read you. I took this out of a big commentary about what is a pedagogos from the Greek and Roman culture, which is what Paul was writing from, which is why he used the word, because his present reader would understand the reference. We have to be taught the historical and cultural hermeneutics so we can make an interpretation. Otherwise, we think schoolmaster, that means uh, my teacher, but it's not the teacher. In fact, the Greeks very specific. You have the pedagogos and the didaskos. Those are two different people. The didaskos is the teacher, the pedagogos is the tutor, and they have totally different roles. So the pedagogos, this is a slave captured during Roman and Greek times that was probably a school teacher before he had to go into the army. He was a slave put in total charge of his master's son. It doesn't include daughter because daughters weren't educated in such a way. Uh, Pedo uh, is boy, um, where we get pedophilia. Uh, So pedagogos means to instruct a son or to instruct a boy. The pedagogos began his assignment when the child left his wet nurse. So again, we're dealing with a wealthier family, not just um, a rural folk farming, living hand to mouth. We're dealing with the, the uppity culture, which everybody in Paul's day understood the culture. So the, they typically left the wet nurse about four or five years old. So as soon as they're weaned, the pedagogos, which is another slave in the house, is assigned to the son. The wet nurse, by the way, was also a slave because most of those women did not have time to breastfeed, so somebody else was breastfeeding them. The slave attendant's job was to train and disciple, even punish the child. The pedagogos walked the child to school, quizzed him on his way home, and had him recite his memory work. That's the pedagogos in Greek and Roman times. What's the purpose of that? To learn, to learn, to learn. Say it to me again. Recite your alphabet. It was Greek. It wasn't ABCs. Recite it to me again. Recite history. I know we're living it. Recite it to me anyway. And so they're drilling it over and over and over and over and over again. This was a 24-7 job for the slave. The child didn't even leave the house without the pedagogos beside him. He was assigned to him for the child's entire, basically, 4, or 5 to 16 years old. Never left his side and made sure he was brought up in the faith, the culture, and the, uh, the vision of the household. But it took 24-7 training to get it done. You and I raise our kids on iPads. So how much of our home culture do our kids really have? Our generation lets their kids live on social media, so they're being discipled by perverts from L.A., weirdos from Chicago, wackadoo guys from London, and who knows what else. And they spend very little time with mom. Mom and very little time with dad. So your kids aren't even your kids. They're definitely not your disciples. They're the disciple of whoever's talking to them 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, 13 hours a day. So that's why we're losing so many children to the world, the flesh, and the devil, because we had them, we birthed them, we conceived them, but we didn't raise them. We just financed their room and board. They've never given us their heart because we never had them with us. So They gave their heart to 16 different people on TikTok, 105 people on Instagram, and who knows what else will come down the pipe next, and that weirdo kid they sit next to and commiserate with at lunchtime. The devil's discipleship is so successful because there's a trillion ways to go to hell, but only one way to make heaven. Wide is that path to destruction. I'm against social media in all forms. I don't think there's anybody in this church mature enough to be on it in any form. Some of you come to me and you're like, well, you know, I check on my grandkids. That's fine, you know. But I hope you have them, grandkids. I would guarantee you every one of you have sinned against your God on social media. And the Bible says, you remember our Jesus? Remember, we were supposed to have this guy, this God, this Savior. He said, if it offends you, cut it off. You can... Totally lock down your phone and laptop, but why not just get rid of them? Oh, God forbid you sacrifice for Christ. We were plowing along so smooth until I hit this rock, (laughs) what we geologists would call a batholith, because I I can't get this one to move. Typically, you plow a little deeper. You can catch the bottom of the rock, pull it to the surface. This thing, I think, is a granitic intrusion, a batholithic. It's just the tip of a giant craton. So you know what happens? Wherever my plow sparks, crops don't grow there. Rocks too shallow. So we'll have a dead spot in that part of our church. Amen. All right. Crucial for the boy and his future was the character and training of the attendant since the boy would reflect that training for the rest of his life. The pedagogos was specifically responsible for the moral and physical education of the child, not the intellectual education. Specifically, the pedagogos was responsible for the moral and the physical education. That's exactly what God's Word does for us. God's Word trains us for morality and trains us in uh, discipline. God's Word doesn't teach us mathematics It doesn't teach us world history. It doesn't even teach us the skills of our language. It doesn't teach us economics necessarily. It doesn't teach us science necessarily. God's word, the focus of God's word is morality and discipline. The Old Testament law teaches us morality and discipline. The New Testament teaches us morality and discipline. Intellectual education, which is is great and we should all be smart and educated, that's not from the word of God. You should go to school and get something if you can even get an education without being woke there's still some professors out there that aren't derelict in their duties. If you can find them. There's a few. The pedagogos trains us in moral and physical education, not intellectual education. That was the job of the Kalos, dasko- the teacher. The pedagogos would even provoke the child to pay attention when he was in class because the pedagogos attended school with the child and would sit next to him and make sure he would stay awake like some of your wives have to poke you guys from time to time. Amen. That's the pedagogos. That's the law, not just God's law. It's any law. So the law is not legalistic. You and I are legalistic. Just like the law is not lawless. You or I become lawless. The obedience to the law without seeing the heart behind it can become legalism. Can. Just because you obey a law doesn't mean you're legalistic. Just because you obey a law without understanding it doesn't make you legalistic. Bud Bud right now, uh, he's in that why stage. Why? 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 And honestly, even the question doesn't even make sense half the time. You, what I just told you, there's no why to be required of here. I just think you're on one track. You're just irritating me, kid. So a couple of weeks ago, he said, stop it. Just say, yes, sir. Just say, yes, ma'am. And then maybe we'll tell you why. Yes, sir. So now, bud, bud, put that down. Yes, sir. Now I ask why? Because I don't want you to pick that up. You might break it. So that's his thing now. He'll say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Now I ask why? Now? there is a place where you just obey because you just need to shut up and obey. And there's nothing wrong with that. Not not in your classroom, not on the job. And once you learn it, then maybe you come back and say, can I inquire why we have to bolt the bolt down to 70 foot-pounds of torque? Not 65, not 78, not 150. So blindly obeying is not necessarily legalism, but it can become if you're not catching it. I want you to understand the law is not the problem. Our flesh is the problem. Our our deluded heart is the problem. But once again, wherever your life is falling apart, you're either lawless or legalistic. Wherever your life is falling apart, you're either lawless or legalistic. When you're lawless, things are falling apart. When you're legalistic, they're so wound tight, you're going to bust. Both of them will produce catastrophic failure. We want to aim down the middle of the road where we're on the tracks called obeying the law, understanding the heart of the law. When we know the heart of the law, we know when we can speed up on it, when we should dial it back. We use the example of speed limits. Speed limits are laws. You should obey them. But if my child is injured and bleeding, I'm not obeying a single speed limit between my house and the hospital. And even if a cop gets behind me, I ain't pulling over for nothing. And when we get to the hospital and there's nine cars behind me and they see me going to the emergency room with the bleeding child, they're going to say, hey, what can we do for you? I'm not even going to stop to say, please, because it's going to take too much time. When we understand the heart of a law, we know when to speed up on it, when to dial it back. And I, hopefully we understand that. Wherever your life is falling apart, you're lawless. Wherever you're stressed out, freaking out, wound tight, you're probably a little legalistic. So strike it down the middle of the road. And it is a constant ebb and flow. Amen. So let's give a couple of examples here so you understand. Because some of us are too afraid we're going to become legalistic. And I just think, no, no, you just need to grow up. Because when you're mature, you understand the whole heart of everything. And you don't mind laws at all because you're mature enough to handle laws. When you're mature, you want the laws. When you're immature, why, 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 why? The older I get, the less I ask why. I don't even care. I don't need to know. I don't care. Just do it. Why? Now I ask why? <laughs> <laughs> so let's make up a couple laws here. I, made, I wrote these down. Here's the letter. Here's the law. Brush your teeth. When you're raising kids, how many times do you have to tell them that? No, uh, dozens of, no, no, that's, that's before breakfast. Till they get it on their own, that's thousands of times. Have you brushed your teeth yet? Well, first you've got to show them how to brush your teeth. Then you've got to inspect it. And then you've got to remind them. And some of your kids, if you have multiple kids, one will take to it like a duck to water. The other, they just grow sweaters on their teeth. And uh, their teeth look like, like uh, garlic bread, just all sorts of stuff growing on it. Like, did you get braces? No, no braces. I just don't brush my teeth. So when you're legalistic about brushing your teeth, you'll have bloody gums and you'll wear the enamel off. Got got, got, got to brush my teeth. Got to brush my teeth. I just ate. Yeah. The last time I went to the dentist, which was about seven years ago, the dentist told me I just need to brush my teeth once every 24 hours. I don't know. They don't even, Dr. James can't even tell me where the whole six month checkup thing came from. Nobody knows where that came from. They finally traced it to an article in a dental magazine in the 19th century. If you're a dentist, thought with Dr. James, he gets you when you haven't been legalistic. <laughs> he gets you when you've been lawless with that whole toothbrushing thing because he's just like, well, we're just going to pull out the last three and we're going to fit you with some new ones. You don't like to brush your teeth? Don't worry, you won't ever have to again. Just fix a dent and forget it. When you're legalistic with brushing your teeth, you'll have bloody gums and you'll wear down the enamel. When you're lawless (laughs) with brushing your teeth, you won't have any. Down the middle is this nice balance. I should brush my teeth at least once a day and floss at least once a day. And if my breath is kicking, I should probably brush it again or pop about a handful of Altoids. (laughs) How about the commandment, get a job? The Bible says if you don't work, neither should you eat. How many of you like parasites? Then don't be one. Don't be one on our society. Don't be one on our government. Don't be one on my taxes. I'm technically self-employed, so I'm kind of like double-taxed. Amen. And I don't like my money going for transgender reassignment surgeries to prisoner inmates, and I don't like money going to deadbeat dads. Amen. Amen. So get a job. Well, legalism would say work 90 hours a week. That'll kill you and your marriage and your kids. Lawlessness says you'll be homeless because you won't get a job or you'll be on welfare or socialism. In the middle is this nice career that prospers and has nice things to show for it. How about healthy diet? When you're legalistic with a healthy diet, you'll get obsessed and you'll be counting everything. And and now gotta be gluten-free, and you gotta be low carb and gotta be organic, gotta be you know vegan, and you gotta, gotta 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 and you're gonna be weird. You're gonna eat carrots till you're orange. Spinach till you're green. And you'll sit down on the toilet and be a salad shooter. <laughs> and die of anemia. <laughs> coleslaw? When's the last time I had coleslaw? Like anytime you sit down, weirdo. So if you're legalistic with a healthy diet, you're going to be obsessed. If you're lawless, you're going to be overweight, diabetic. You're going to have weird issues. When you're balanced right down the middle, you're disciplined. You have a balanced diet. You're healthy. You're disciplined. You you don't eat more than you need. The reason people initially gain weight is because they take in more calories than their body needs. And so they begin to pack on the weight. And then I get it. There's a lot of science that gets into it. Then your body doesn't want to burn that weight anymore. Then it becomes harder to lose weight. But you can't just tell me it's strictly genetic because I've seen pictures of Auschwitz and there were no heavy people in Auschwitz. Anybody can lose weight when the budget is right. That comes back to discipline. How about pray? Prayer is a commandment. That's a law. But you can become so legalistic, you're spooky, and you won't get a job because you want to pray nine hours a day. I had to preach this in Uganda. It was with the request of the pastor. I said, What can I help correct in your church or teach? What do you need me to teach on? He said, Some of my people won't get a job. I said, Why not? He said, They want to come here and pray every day. He said, I don't need their prayers, I need their tithes. I can fix that. You can become so legalistic with prayer, you become a weird woman. Mostly, it's women that become weird with prayer. I haven't ever met a man that prayed too much. You get weird charismatics. I call them charismatic witches. Because they spend so much time in the spirit realm they don't know when they left God and started to hold hands with a demon. It's weird. Now you got a husband to care for, you got a house to keep, you got kids to raise, you got a job to take. You know, I, I think if you can get an hour of prayer in a day, you're doing really good. So you can become so legalistic with praying every day, you become a spooky witch channeling demons. Or you can become so lawless that you have a defeated life. Christians that are defeated mentally don't have a prayer life. You can't spend 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour a day in prayer and live defeated. Most defeat, most victimhood is right in here between your ears. And, and if you can't master the six inches between your ears, the rest of your life is ruined. If you're from the upper Cumberland living that thing, it's runt. If you can't master the six inches between your ears, your life is runt. That is to say, ruined it. <laughs> Runt. <laughs> in between is this nice balance where there's seasons where you might need to pray two or three hours a day. An hour in the morning, a little bit at lunch, and a little bit more at night. And then, then there's a baseline, and you don't ever sink below your baseline of at least 30 minutes to an hour a day. And I know that stretches some of you. How much time were you wasting on Facebook a year ago? How much time do you spend eating every day? How much time do you spend watching something on your phone? You You have the time to pray at least an hour a day. You just don't want to. Your life just doesn't hurt enough. Or you don't believe prayer will change it. How about a budget? You can be so legalistic with the budget, you become a tightwad. You pinch every penny. You rub them together, try to make a nickel out of it. And you become a tightwad. And that's not God. There is he that withholdeth more than is good, and it ends up in poverty. Or you can be lawless with the budget, and it becomes debt, always wasting money you don't have, never able to get ahead, always credit card debt, always behind on your mortgage, always behind on your car payment. There's a problem when you have three mortgages on your house. That problem is you. I don't know why you have more than one mortgage on your house. Maybe the extreme case would be medical bills, but three and four mortgages I think you you have issues. There's no reason to finance a car for 96 months. That's a car you can't afford because before you even get it half paid off you're upside down on it. Credit card debt, constant revolving credit card debt, that's that's not the will of God either. Somewhere in the middle is this nice healthy balance of ebbing and flowing with prosperity. You have a budget. You live by it. You save up some savings. You, you make a purchase. You make an acquisition, and you deplete your savings, and you have investments, and you're ebbing and flowing, and, and you, you live it, and you're able to get out of debt, and you're able to build some wealth, and the Lord will stretch you, and you'll give a big offering, and the Lord will stretch you, you'll give a car away, and then you'll build it back up, and it ebbs and flows, but your base gets wider and wider and wider. It's balance. The law is not the problem. Legalism is the problem. Lawlessness is the problem. And wherever your life is falling apart, you are lawless. Wherever you are stressed out and freaking out over, you're legalistic. Amen. Uh, Let me me read you a verse or two here. I'm going to come back. I have a judo example, and I'm going to use it, but I want to show you something first. Go to Jeremiah 31. you learning anything this morning? Good. This is nothing I haven't taught many times before, but it seems like we need to hear it again on the pedagogas, pedagogical teaching and instruction. We have it in our pedagogy. Uh, pedagogy. How do you pronounce it now? Huh? Pedagogy. Yeah, I can pronounce it in the Greek, but not in the English. Uh, we have it in modern education now because we bring it over from, from the Greek. Jeremiah 31 verse 33. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, this is a future promise. This is in the second advent of Christ. It's not right now, but we're working towards this every day principle here is we taking the law of God off of the tablets of stone, so to speak, and writing them on the tables of our heart. Once the law is off the tables of stone and on the tables of our heart, we don't have to look at the tables of stone anymore. We are by default going to do what was written on the tables of stone. But until it's written on the tables of our heart, we got to keep looking at it, keep looking at it, keep looking at it, keep looking at it. This is in the future when Christ comes back and he rules with a rod of iron, but we can aim for this right now. You don't have to remind me, don't kill. You don't have to remind me, don't commit adultery. You don't have to remind me, keep the Sabbath, make it holy. You do have to remind seeker-friendly churches to make it holy because the seeker church doesn't know how to make the, the Sabbath holy. You don't have to remind me, don't covet. That one, I think all of us were like, I like that. But I like what one man said. Covetousness is not seeing something and liking it. It's like, I will kill you if I can to get it. That's covetousness. I will do whatever I can to get it out of your hand and put it in mine. There's nothing wrong with saying, I like that car. Where'd you get it? How much was it? Man, yeah. Lord, I want to talk to you about that. There's nothing wrong with seeing something and saying, Lord, I'd like that. But when I want yours and I'll stop at nothing to get it, that becomes covetousness. So we want to make that distinction. You don't have to tell me not to lie. Or to bear false witness or to falsely testify. I'm not going to do that. But until those laws are on the table of your heart, we've got to keep telling you, and you've got to keep telling it. Because wherever your life is falling apart, that law is not on the table of your heart. Dr. Barclay says 70% of leadership is leading yourself. And if you can't lead yourself, you'll never lead. God will never use you to lead hardly anything. And you can't blame anybody but yourself. He says in verse 34 they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. That's how we know this isn't today. This isn't even next week. This is in the millennial reign of Christ. For they shall all know me from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. We won't have to teach anymore because everybody will have that word written on the table of their heart. We're still working to do that. This comes back to the uh, uh, pedagogas. His job was to walk with that child and constantly put that word in his heart. Constantly write, this is what your father wants done. This is how we do it in the McMichael household. This is our culture. This is our custom. This is how we walk. This is how we stand. This is how we inflect our words. This is how we treat people. And you drill it over and over and over again. The greatest... One of the greatest plagues we're facing right now is this lack of parenting so that these kids are raising themselves. They have no culture of their own. It's all TikTok culture. That's all social media culture. It's all whimsical lawless culture and everything they're watching out there anyways, airbrushed and filtered. It's not even reality. Those people on the other end with all the followers, all those social media influences, they're miserable, they're depressed, they're suicidal. They may have the highest death rate of anybody in the world right now, except for like drug people, cartels. The pedagogos, he made sure the household laws were written on the tables of that boy's heart. And he only had till he was about 16. The Jews taught 13. That's why it's so important to have your kids around you as much as possible. Because if you're not parenting them and discipling them, something else is constantly. Something else. That's why you're taking every opportunity to talk to your children. Once that law is on your heart, nobody has to tell you again. You just do it. Nobody calls me to disciple me anymore. Nobody says, Chris, have you read your Bible today? Chris, are you holy? Chris, are you clean? Chris, do you pay your tithe? Nobody calls me to check on me anymore. Chris, are you working on that book? Chris, are you checking on your church? Chris, have you, have you got your church organized? Nobody nobody disciples me anymore. If I step into something new, I will go pursue a discipler who can help me. But right now where I'm at, I have a pastor, but he doesn't constantly say, how are you doing there, son? He doesn't call me. Did you get up early this morning? Did you go to the office today? Did you have counseling appointments? Did you meet with the lawyers? Did you meet with the city council? He doesn't do that. When your life is falling apart, you need that. Wherever your life is imploding, you are lawless, And you need that pedagogos to remind you, quote it to me again, do it again, do it again, you missed a word, do it again, stand up, shoulders back, stay awake. Where were you? Why'd you skip church? When you skip church, you are immature. You need a pedagogos. You need that in your life. Because mature people, we don't have to call and check on you. Amen. And it's not legalism. The winds of the last day are blowing stronger and stronger and the church is more and more asleep. And there was a quote from Hitler. He said in in the Third Reich as he was rising to power before Nazism was full-fledged and he was massacring with the genocide and all that. He said, we don't have to worry about the Parsons. That's preachers. He said they'll sell them and their congregations out for a better paycheck. He said, I don't have to worry about them being a moral backbone for our culture. They'll sell themselves out. Hitler knew that. That's how he judged the German church in the 1930s. I have the quote on my phone somewhere. You and I, we got to press in even further. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, and then I'm going to give you a judo example, and I'll find somebody I don't like, and I'll throw you it's not true. Last time I did this, I used Schmitty. It's been about four or five years ago. I use this same example. I have pictures now. I'm not going to load anybody in a judo throw. I did actually really hurt myself when I demonstrated it on a Wednesday night, and I had to limp the rest of the service very quietly. I'm like, oh, I should have warmed up. I am getting a little older. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Schmitty outweighs me by 50 pounds. So I thought if I could load him and throw him, I'm still doing pretty good. Second Corinthians chapter 3. You there? Verse two, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men for as much as you are made manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in the tables of stone, but in the fleshy tables of the heart. Here again, we have this this, um, concept, this spiritual principle of getting things off of legalistic tables and putting them on the tables of our heart. Is it legalistic for your wife to expect you to come home every night? Every night? I mean, isn't that a little legalistic? You expect me home every night? You expect me to bring my paycheck home every two weeks? Does it have to be? I'm supposed to give that to the cause of the household? I can't keep any of it? I can't keep it all? That's so legalistic. You expect me not to kiss any other women? That is just legalistic. You guys expect me to be here to minister to you every service? You expect me to be prayed up, studied up. You expect me to stay holy. That's very legalistic of you guys. You, you guys are Pharisees. You expect me to run a tip-top ship, shape ship every service every week and get better week after week. That is so legalistic of you guys. That's what you say when I expect that of you. Your life should be improving. If the archaeologists are right, meh, and we came out of caves, flint striking rocks, making fire, mankind has improved in the last six, seven, eight, nine thousand years. Why don't we improve like that? Some of you have come to this church for years. Your life is disintegrated. You're hanging on by a prayer, my prayers, God's anointing, you've not improved, which means you've been lawless. And we've taught you all the laws. Lives only fall apart because of lawlessness or legalism. They thrive right down the middle of the road. So now let me teach you something about judo real quick. And then I got two, three pictures we'll pull up. So have that ready, but not yet. So you guys know I used to do judo, jiu-jitsu. I'm a lot better at judo than I was at jiu-jitsu, though I was very good at both of them, I competed some. When you learn judo, judo is basically just Japanese wrestling, and it, judo emphasizes throws. There's about 65 throws in the catalog of judo throws. And you, I, when the Olympics was a couple weeks ago, I watched almost every judo match I could stream on the Peacock app. And I don't think I saw any throw beyond the first five or six you learn when you're a white belt who knows nothing. So the other 60, they're just fancy ways of doing the same thing over and over again. But there's this throw, the first, some of the first three throws you love, first two throws are Ipon Senagi and Morote Seinagi. And all it means is single shoulder throw and double hand throw. Morote is hand. So Ipon Senagi, Morote Senagi, which just means shoulder throw. But when you first learn Ipon senagi or Morote senagi, and your instructor says, all right, line up. We're going to load Ipon or Morote senagi," You're going to go, what? Because you don't know what it is. So you have to be instructed in it. And so to do it, it there's like 10 or 15 steps to pull the throw off. And so you hold each other in judo because it is like a little bit of a dance and you're feeling each other's balance and you want to steal balance. And so they'll tell you, you've got to step your leg back. And you want to try to open them up. So here's like movement one. You want to open them up. So you'll sit there for like 20 minutes doing that. The first time you ever learn it. Open them up. Open them up. And you'll even be corrected because you're not opening them up right. This is so legalistic. But do you want to be good at judo or not? If you've come to judo class, this is all we do here. And part of judo is Ipon Sayanagi. and if you can learn it, you're going to devastate people the rest of your life. So shut up and just practice opening them up. Practice opening them up. All right. What's the next one? Now we step in. So one, step in. You're not doing it right. Oh, so legalistic. Shut up and do it. That's all we do here. It's judo. Step back, open them up, load in. And then you finally load in. And you, nope, got it. And they'll come along and they'll Get that elbow tighter under their armpit. You got to get it, pull them tighter. Pull it, and they'll just sit there, and you'll just do this for 20 minutes at a time, every one of the seven, eight, nine steps. And then, but now your brain's bogging down. Okay, yeah, open up like this, and I got to bring in, open up like this, got to bring in. And then they say, I'll turn tighter, turn tighter. And they'll say, put your bum on their knee. And then rub it on their knee. They'll tell you, rub it on their knee. So then you kind of got to go up and down on their knee great. Now they're going to pull you backwards because you don't have them loaded. So now you've stepped in. So you load, you load, bend your knees because you don't want your knees to blow up in the ears. So you're, you just feel like a total goofball. This is Ipon Seinagi. Actually, this is Moroto Seinagi. Morote. All right. Now pull them, now pull them, load them, load them, pop your hips, pop, knock those legs out, rotate. And seven, eight, nine, 10 steps. And then you come back the next class, you totally forgot all of it. Like I remember rubbing the bum. That's all I remember. <laughs> Feel like a dumb chicken rubbing the bum <laughs> when you finally get this done down, and it takes four, five, six months. They can say marote sayanagi, and you, you line up and load, line up and load, line up and load. Super legalistic, and you'll spend months learning every step of the way. But when you pull the move off, it's a fraction of a second. Show show the first picture. This is a successful marote sayanagi. That's a grown man who just had his balance stolen from him, and he is being thrown at a competition. Happens in a fraction of a second. The guy getting thrown doesn't even know what happened, though he knows exactly what just happened. Next picture. That's the efficacy of it. But so legalistic to get there. This is so legalistic. I'm just so bound. I'm just so bound. This is so condemning and legalistic. There's such Pharisees here. This last picture. Yep, and it only took you six months to learn the eight steps, hours on each step. And then when your, your instructor says, uh, line up, let's demonstrate. Chris, show, me, show the new guys, Morote Senagi. So you grab some kid and you just, wow, same with the kingdom. If I look at you and say, I need you to go in the sanctuary and intercede for Pastor Brett, you got to know what that means. If I say, all right, get your five scriptures, get the victory over this, you better know what that means. If I say you better be able to tithe your way out of this problem, serve your way out of this. I need you to go down there and take care of that church's problem. That that one command has a thousand commands wrapped up in it. And we're worried about laws, legalism. Your only alternative is to be some fat, toothless hobo living in a homeless camp. Because that's what you want. You want to be left alone without a care in the world because this life takes too much work to be successful in. The government is banking on that. The antichrist is banking on you and I wanting every responsibility removed from us. Just let somebody else work. Let's just keep printing money off at 60 miles an hour. Just keep giving me that STEMI, baby, STEMI, and give me some food stamps, baby. Why would I go back to work when I got STEMI and food stamps? There's better, but it takes work. So don't want to be upset because we say, you need a law. You need, you need a law. Success in your life is dependent upon strict discipline. Success in your life requires strict discipline. How do you pass your exams at the university? You've got to be able to budget your time, but have time for your job. If you work a part-time job, time for class, time for labs and come back, time to study your work do the homework assignments and prepare for the exam. If you're lawless, you flunk out. If you're lawless, you lose your scholarship. Anything in life takes extremely strict discipline. I have found, though, that with our kids, as strict as we were in the early years, we don't hardly even spank them much now. They come and go through seasons. They're joyful. They're compliant. We have fun as a family. We're doing pretty good. another couple of years, Lydia will be a teenager. There's no signs of stupid. There's no signs of rebellion. But we were legalistic. Well, you will let the kids just do what they want? Oh, because lawlessness is free, Pastor. There's so much freedom in lawlessness. No, there's not. There's only heartache and sorrow. Do you treat your car that way? Just don't even care for it? Don't you wash it? Don't you clean it? Don't you rotate the tires? Did you know you should? Don't you like put an oil change every three to five to eight thousand miles? Did you know that you should? How about windshield wipers? Should you not maybe swap those out so you can see on a rainy day? Everything in life takes a lot of legalistic maintenance to make life better. How about those airplanes you fly on? You want them just to kind of just wing it, so to say? No, we don't want maintenance. That's legalistic. This thing can't possibly come down. It's too big. Don't inspect those engines. Don't worry about those lights coming on. That bop, bop, bop. Don't worry about that alarm. I found this big nut rolling around in the back. Don't worry about this bolt. No. That's legalistic. We're free free to crash and burn (laughs) no we our life is made better by strict discipline and wherever your life is falling apart you're lawless wherever you're stressed out you're probably legalistic because one will just you'll just fall apart and one will just twist you in knots so we have to strike out right down the middle of the law of god his laws are not difficult his commandments are not grievous the law is good then Just and perfect and holy and purifying us. So we obey them. They paint a picture. And your life will improve. Amen.